motherfuckers welcome back to another episode of rock isn't dead it's just sleeping another extra special quarantine episode with an extra special guest say hi special guest hello special guest hello special guest i don't have like a cool nickname like you guys do misfit mike martinez (laughs) there you go (laughs) you may know him for the guy that pros oh here's the audio slave What's up, guys? How's Hello, Marcus. How's my uh, audio right now? Oh, man, it sounds awful and muffled. <laughs> Does it really? I figured it was. Yeah, real bad, but we'll work with it. That's all I got, man. <laughs> yeah, so what are we talking about today, guys? Probably one of the most influential and talked about rock bands of all time. I'd say probably one of the most, one of the pinnacle examples of a band that is mastered their craft oh yeah for sure and that band is called rush also known as a trio yeah yeah (laughs) a trio and that's pretty rare in rock music to see a uh you know a badass trio to that level you know because they they go against the standard obviously the standard four-piece band setup and getty and alex and neil are just were an absolute powerhouse together yeah, the the fact mm-hmm. that that much sound could come out of three freaking dudes, incredible. Oh yeah, absolutely insurmountable, cool. man. Like insurmountable talent. And Getty Lee was responsible for the huge sound for the most part, you know, with all his tricks up his sleeve. Oh, good mm-hmm. God! Yeah, like that guy was like an octopus. <laughs> yeah, <music. I> know. <laughs> yeah, he had an absolute intense ear for his craft. Mm-hmm. I was watching. Um, a little bit ago today, I was watching just videos of him running, you know, just bass lines, just practicing before a show. And it just blew my mind. I was like, holy shit, man, this guy is absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. He, he would run bass lines with his left hand on the fretboard yeah. while he was playing a fucking synth and then doing shit with his foot. Like, it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you, you got, like, lead singers who struggle to sing garbage oh yeah oh yeah absolutely and and you know i think uh and actually mike you and i you and i talked about this previously um and we'll get we'll get into the the first drummer that rush had because he he deserves his due but you know neil pure he's probably one of if not the most talked about drummer in rock and roll history oh yeah oh yeah yeah you know what i mean the guy guy was an absolute monster like when anybody, any drummer, any musician of all time, they're talking about, hey, man, what's your favorite drummer? Uh, I don't know about my favorite, but the, the best one I know is Neil Peart, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> it's funny that you're saying his last name, right? Because everybody fucks it up. It's Peart, not Pert. Yeah. Yeah. Peart. <laughs> yeah. Peart. And that's not to say what we talked about is uh, that's not to sleep on Alex Lifeson now, because Alex, Alex Lifeson, their, their guitar player, he's an, he, he's an amazing guitar player. Oh, one, oh of the, yeah, great. one of the most underrated guitar players. Unless you're I, like a super Rush nerd, no one really knows how badass that dude was. Well, because he simmered it down towards uh, towards the end. 
Like, I, I don't say, I'm, I shouldn't say towards the end. I should say towards the middle when they broke free of the progressive rock era and started going into the synth era. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. He, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. He purposefully toned down his ripping solos. Well, that no, guy, I'm going to say that. I'm not saying it was terrible. The 80s was terrible. If you, if you, if you saw their videos. Yeah. They're, they're, they were trying to fit into the, the niche, I guess, of. 80s yeah, yeah rock, i understand but... yeah they, they have to you know kind of progress along with the with everybody else well they grew they grew pretty progressively throughout throughout music history i mean this this is a band that's been together for 41 years yeah 40 40 something years, one of the you know longest I mean? bands to ever be together oh yeah yeah oh yeah and and so they had to change their sound you know how long do you think they'd get far like how far do you think they'd get in the 80s still pushing out zeppelin records mm, yeah exactly <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Like, there, there had to have been like a following back back then for for rock. I know there was. I mean, well, well, I mean, I'm sure there are. But this is the thing: like, you'll get trapped in that kind of Pearl Jam mindset where you you kind of break off from the progression of you know what they're listening to on the radio and big big industry music, and then you start going into you know niche music. Well, look, you're talking to somebody who loves '80s music, and as far as '80s music goes. If you listen to to Rush's songs, they're 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 not that great. I mean, no. I mean, as far as eighties music is concerned, during you know, during that era, the, yeah, that, their, their that, music kind of yeah. that was probably their saying, low lowest. That's point. the exactly. That's exactly my point. Like, yeah, they're a great band, but the eighties wasn't kind to them. Well, and and I'll tell you why, in my opinion, is because they were out of their element. Exactly. They were trying to be something that they're not. Exactly. Well, Alex, yeah. Alex Lifeson said he was going to leave the band if, if it was going to continue on like that. So Getty Lee was like, right. okay, I'll put my synthesizers down. And you can pick your guitar back up. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, look look back to 80s music. If you weren't fucking with a synthesizer, you weren't playing music in the 80s. Yeah, and I understand where, where his take was. You know, well, this is my, ch- my chance to shine on my synth, you know, and, and it didn't work out as well as he thought it was going to work out. Did, right. that, I mean, right. that guitar-oriented shit didn't even start till like, the 90s. So they went through years of weird synth crap that was right super awkward oh, yeah well <laughs> but okay, honestly so let's, like let's... during the, that time like they still came out with some badass songs like you can't lie like they they wrote right. some amazing things exactly mm-hmm. so let's let's go back to the beginning a little bit they formed in 68 alex lifeson and getty lee were schoolmates right getty lee uh vocals lead vocals obviously and bass uh, and keyboards, and Alex Lifeson was guitars, and at the time it was John Rutsey, um, which was their initial drummer, and he was the drummer on the first self-titled Rush album. Right. Um, and he wasn't replaced with Neil Peart until July of 1974, before two weeks before the group's first tour of the U.S. Um, so let's let's talk about a little bit of I think. Well, I mean, honestly, it wasn't even Getty Lee at first. Like Alex started it with another dude who was. Right, Jeff Jones, I think was his name. Let no one knows about. Hmm. Yeah, it was, I don't think I don't think he was in it for long enough to be important. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> I think it says like a couple of fucking weeks. <laughs> yeah, for for a historian, like a Rush historian standpoint, sure, an honorable mention. But I don't feel like he was you know impactful enough to be considered no. Rush. He just jammed with Alex Lifeson for True. a while. You know. So Rush as a whole, they started off in 68. We'll, we'll talk about some of their main uh, influences. And you can hear that in Getty's high-pitched yells and his, his, the way he sings. You, it's very Led Zeppelin-esque. <laughs> yeah. Right? Very Jewish. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> What's so that? Very Jewish. So were they very Jewish? <laughs> so were they the Greta Van Fleet of their day? <laughs> the Greta Van Fleet of their day, right? No, I mean they they did. They, I mean, Led Zeppelin was a huge influence on them, and you can hear that even with all like the fantasy and kind of science fiction in their lyrics. They're, that's in a lot of their yeah lyrics, their story, you know? Yeah, yeah they they definitely were exactly and they were kind of the first that they're kind of, well i mean they probably saw that les zeppelin did a lot of that kind of stuff and that's maybe where they got a little bit of inspiration but i mean they were around in 68 so i mean they were all kind of grooving on the same years you know yeah but like led zeppelin didn't like they're like for rush like their whole album was kind of a story and it, from start to begin like start to ending but like you know, Led Zeppelin didn't really do that that much at that time. Well, no, no, no. Like it, Led Zeppelin was a, a stadium rock band, but like I'm just saying, like the the motive of their lyrics and the driving force behind their creativity was very Led Zeppelin esque. They were because Led Zeppelin was storytellers, but look at the you know the the members that they had in their band. They were all powerhouse musicians and wanted to sell two million records. True. You know what I mean? <laughs> Rush, Rush was just, uh, like we talked about offline, they were just a bunch of nerdy kids jamming together that happened to be fantastic at their craft. Yeah, they, well, they, be, they became that way. They became the stadium band later on, though. They did, eventually. They, yeah, eventually. They, I don't think they ever had any intention of being what they became. Oh, never. No. Never at all. They, they just Well, you know, they were overnight success, pretty much. Yeah. And like even with their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, they were so humble about it. They're like, whatever. <laughs> that's because they're cool, down to earth dudes, yeah. man. They're not, you know, like self absorbed rock stars like, you know, Mick Jagger, you know? Yeah. Well, when, and also I think it's notable to mention like when they first started playing, it was very difficult for them in Canada because they were young kids, they were 16, 17. 18 years old and they were having to play like these school halls and little concert halls wherever they could get a gig because they couldn't play bars. Yeah, and, and yeah. that type of music wasn't very big in Canada at that time. It was very uh no. very experimental. They weren't used to that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And their their first uh their first single was Not Fade Away. Uh, it was a Buddy Holly song that that came out in 73. So that that kind of started getting the gears moving with them a little bit and then they formed their own independent uh record label moon records so that that kind of started picking things up a little bit as well um th- and when they were what's that i was gonna say i think that their original uh drummer the jod rutsey he got a pretty raw deal he, yeah <laughs> I, I would think so yeah he left on his own accord though according to that's not what i info. saw on, on, on one of the movies i was watching he he was pretty much told by the by the producer or the uh or no it was the um he kind of got pushed manager, out right their, their tour their tour manager yeah he was kind of like sorry man you 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 have diabetes so if if you continue to drink with these guys you're gonna die so we need to find a new drummer mm. and i think it was uh i think it was a hey would you rather quit or would you want me to fire you type scenario exactly you need to do it now you know do it mean? now and get it over with so we can just move on please and Right, because after after their self titled album, you know, dropped in seventy four, they they knew their record label knew that they were getting ready to take off, and they knew that John Rutsey couldn't handle it. Yeah, and he and I mean, not to put him down, like, but he was nowhere near the caliber. So everything happens for a reason, and damn, did it not turn out great for them? Oh my god! (laughs) Yeah, it definitely happened for a reason. Like Jesus Christ, I had like, I feel sorry for him and all that, but. 
not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel bad for about two seconds. Yeah, yeah. They 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 received a uh, a drumming god in, in his exchange. And you know, like honestly, from a, a drummer standpoint, when they first started, he wasn't that good. Like Neil Pert was like one of those dudes who wanted to get better at his craft. And if you really mm-hmm. followed him, like their first album, he was okay. He did some normal stuff because like his inspirations were John Bonham and, and whatnot. So you can kind of hear that, but he didn't do Keith Yeah, Moon yeah, Keith shit. Moon. He didn't do any of the crazy shit that you he hear him do now. Well he like Yeah, but grew. well I, back in back in those days though, nobody was doing the crazy shit yet. I mean, and, and that, you know, according to Getty Lee, Getty Lee was, he was like, man, the first time I saw Neil perform, you know, for us to, to audition, he was like, sold. I, I exactly. Him. And like you, if you followed them, like throughout their, their good God, how long journey that they had, like you could like see Neil grow and grow. Cause that dude just learned and learned. He was like a powerhouse. He was, mm-hmm. Well, f- think about it in the sense of like, most other bands that you see that are already semi-successful musicians and they substitute a member, it always takes that new member, at least an album, you know, to pick up their creativity and pick up their flow and see where they fit in with the band dynamic. Like look at Eddie Vedder when he, when they first formed Pearl Jam, he was just some surfer guy working at a fucking gas station and, and look at, look at uh, Robert Plant. He was in the room with, you know, absolutely successful musicians you know jimmy page just came out of the Yardbirds. it took him an album it took him led zeppelin one to find his footing you know and i think that was the same thing with neil Peart. like it, he he just took an album to step back because you know he wasn't going to come in there swinging his dick around and be like all right thanks for you know let me in the band i'm gonna start writing your songs now they were babies you they, know? they were kids yeah. when, you know they were... right but the, they were very dedicated and they already had an album yeah well you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I think in the sense of age, yes, there were kids, but in the sense of musicianship, they've already surpassed my 30 year old ass when they were 16 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I think it was a little bit of that. And plus, you know, he was gearing up, look at their first tour. They were fucking opening for, uh, you know, Manford man and Uriah <laughs> Heath mm-hmm. in front of 11,000 people. That was his first gig. That was, that was his first yeah. gig. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. going from zero to that. So, wow. Yeah, that'd be nuts. That's going from, you know, playing in your dad's garage because that's literally what he did. He was working at his dad's, you know, shop. Mm-hmm. I think it was an auto parts store. And then he, you know, joined Rush yeah. <laughs> and, and, and went on to play with Uriah Heep, which was huge in 68. Yeah. Uriah Heep was a very big name by that time. Anyway. Uh, kind of a so, weird mix, though, to have Rush open up for those guys. Not I don't know if it was at the time because I don't feel like the music industry or they had established, especially in the United States, because that was their first. No one US really game. cared. If it, yeah. Nobody <laughs> knew who they were. Yeah. They were just like, okay, bring your eye heap on. Yeah, exactly. That's like, you know, when Nirvana would open up for Alice in Chains, nobody, nobody knew who Nirvana was at the time mm-hmm. with Bleach out, you know, and then got lo and behold, you've got one that's, you know, sur- you know, surpasses it. Um, but since the very beginning, you know, the focus, the one thing that I absolutely adore about Rush is even though they followed out with the musical periods, you know, throughout time, we're talking about the synth rock, the progressive mm-hmm. rock era, you know, things like that. They are always focused primarily on their instrumental aspects. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. super long in, like intros or they're, you know, what <laughs> their, their songs went on forever. Their best songs did anyways. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely fantastic. They're, you know, when they started finding their, you know, because they went from those Led Zeppelin roots, you know, Led Zeppelin got their toes in the water, but their real, their real roots and the real focus are bands, you know, like the progressive rock bands. We're talking like King Crimson, Genesis, Yes, shit like that. Like if you listen to the first three or four albums, you're going to hear, yes, a mixture of Yes, Genesis and, and mm. King Crimson. You know what I mean? Like uh, Fly By Night, for example, that came out in February of 75 with Mercury Records. Look at the singles on that. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, the whole the whole side side two, the whole side one, for that matter, is is a chronological story, which is so, so progressive. Rock it hurts. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's a progressive rock fucking anthem and i that think whole that's what kind of like maybe hurt them in a way is like they were so progressive and what i guess you would call it an acquired taste at that time i yeah, think it put them in like a box they were kind of pigeonholed into the stoner rock group to where the jam yeah, band the whole Agreed. jam band thing which I, I don't really think that's what they were trying to do but that's what they they kind of got put no. there like you know you go home and you, you get stoned and you throw your headphones on and but they weren't like in with the big arena bands or anything so they kind of got pushed to the side because mm-hmm. those yeah. type of people that listen to that music were also pushed to the side like they weren't like during that time frame everybody was listening to the big arena bands so right yeah but they were just another up and coming band you know and then once they became known they were you know the band that nerds liked <laughs> well and that's and that's exactly what they were and that was the target yeah. that that's the target audience that they wanted to hit because that's that's, an, that's it's an untapped were. resource that nobody's you know kind of tapped into yet exactly yeah. so like if you look at even more so you can see them growing even further into the progressive rock stuff with their third studio album caress mm. of steel it, you know it's a five it's a five track album yeah right and the entire front album is progressive rock to the threshold their number four song the necromancer that's split into three different parts into the darkness under the shadow return of the prince like that's all one consecutive story that's very led zeppelin meets progressive rock you know the aspects of science fiction and fantasy and things of that nature and then the entire side two is a 20 minute song <laughs> yeah. like what? god damn well, what do they think is gonna happen if you put a 20 minute song on your album you're gonna be prog rock for life you're going to be fucking Pink Floyd Echoes. Exactly. Is what you're going to be. Probably well, rock for fucking You're talking days. about Caress of Steel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even when you look at the, the song titles, it's all, you know, Dungeons and Dragons esque fantasy. Yeah. Thing, so. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look at, look at the, look at the guys though. Like look at, look at Getty Lee and look at Alex. And, no, well, you know I think I mean? Alex like, kind of looked normal and then Getty Lee and, and Neil kind of were the ones that kind of, well, weird. like during that time though, yeah. they dressed the part. <laughs> That's oh yeah. Funny. Oh yeah. How about that one period where all the, all they wore was the Oriental silk, you know, uh, yeah. Gowns. Like the kimonos <laughs> with all the glitter. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Dude, I love it. I love it so much. And then the very next album, their fourth studio album, 2112, is the same thing. Yeah, great album, but 20-minute song, side one. Fantastic, but get your beanbags ready and fucking pull up, folks. You know, like, 
uh, but that was also, you know, that was their their first real commercial success. And there was a lot. Too. There was a lot That's of bands that. doing it, though. I mean, everybody, everybody was. was going down to their basement, like to that '70s show, getting high and putting on a, a record. And then just chilling for like an hour and a half, listening to the instrumentals and getting lost in them. And so that's that's who they wanted to emulate, I guess. Or yeah. Know. Well, I mean, that's what was selling in the United States. Yeah. Because it was like at that time, it was the British music invasion at that time. And you had Pink Floyd taking over the, the rock and roll circuit because, you know, Zeppelin started semi fizzling out by that point. I think House of the Holy was, you yeah. know, was coming out around there. But but, you know, in the late 70s the mid to late seventies, that's when that shit started coming out. And that shit eventually gave birth to synth rock, which they fell into as well, you know, with, you know, farewell to Kings hemispheres, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's only natural with, with, uh, Getty's, you know, keyboard skills. Yeah. 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 So as a drummer, Mike, I want to take a little segue from the, from the history lesson as a drummer. What's the segue? What's that? (laughs) Yeah. Segway. As a as a drummer, what sort of influences does Neil have on your playing style? Like, what what do you? Ta- I don't know, you know, Dick all about drumming other than, hey, I, I follow you, you know. But I, I want what what sort of stuff is he bringing to the table for drummers? Like, what I know it's got to be an insurmountable amount of information to follow. But what's he bringing well, to the table? It's crazy for you guys? because like, there's no way that I could really explain it because that dude was in his own element. Um, a lot of his inspirations are the same ones that I have, like, you know, Keith Moon, um, uh, shit. There's so many different ones, very rudimental drummers, like not so much into crazy, you know, flamboyancy or whatever, but like super refined and like focused on all his fills and all that kind of shit. Like, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but (laughs) But like, yeah, like Buddy Rich, uh, he was super close to the Buddy Rich family. I don't know if you know who Buddy Rich is, but that dude was, uh, oh yeah, Buddy probably Rich. one of the greatest jazz drummers mm-hmm. of all time. Like, it's insane. That guy did things that no one had ever seen before in that time. So he blew everybody away. Um, and he ba- he basically didn't he show Neil how to play? I mean, a second time around. Uh, per se? Uh, he he did a lot with his daughter. Um, like uh, he was invited by his daughter to do some memorial stuff. I, I think I'm not sure if he actually played with him or, or not, but well, I forget who it was in the documentary I just watched that came out several years ago. I think it was him. And he basically, you know, gave him a redirection in, in how, how drumming should his, his particular drumming should, should go and like loosen him up. Kind of, uh, I got you. I guess you could say, like I remember, Mike. I think uh, you're talking about Freddie Krueger. Freddie yes, Krueger was yes. also like one of the That's 90s badass jazz drummers. That's exactly yeah, so what like it is. Yeah. Before he was doing like that prog rock, weird experimental drumming shit, and then it, you could tell like in the late 90s, 2000s, he got into some more jazzy, very cleaned up stuff. Like all his drum solos were like perfected and very like organized i don't know Mm because like i mean his drum solos were badass they were one of a kind but if you see other really amazing drummers drum solos like they'll go all over the place and go nuts and everybody's like oh it's badass but it's not organized it's 
and it's not it's not articulated. Right, yeah, it's fucking messy. Like to the right. Well, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of drummers because I've gotten in this debate with people a couple times because there's a lot of drummers. That yeah, are yeah. Faster you can be fast as hell, but Ben Neal. Well, shit, Joey Jordison, the former you know drummer for Slipknot, he was faster. But as far as like you said, put togetherness, technicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And unpredictability. Neil's yeah, going to take his, it every his, time. I mean, his solos kind of told a story, so you could like follow it. And he like went through history and stuff right. like that. Like it wasn't just a mix mash of a bunch of cool shit, like ooh and ah, but yeah, it wasn't just a bunch of run, random drum no, transitions he, I, put together. And, like, going through like. If he really followed him, he was kind of hesitant at first about putting electronic drums in his set at first. Uh, but yeah. he was one of the first people to bring that into the forefront. And like he brought in, like, I think it was Simmons drums back in their early days. Mm-hmm. Like, Simmons was, you know, they had those, they had those big pads, huge. like that. I mean, yeah. but that was like what it was at the time. Like, it, it was a new thing to have electronic drums and like. And he mm-hmm. brought that in there right. and integrated it so well. Like he didn't; it wasn't gaudy, you know. Like, well, during that time as well, all the other members of the band, you know, Alex and Getty, they were they were doing yeah. their experimental thing too. You know, Getty started playing with the synthesizer stuff. He started being real prominent with the synthesizer lines, as well as Alex Leipzig. He he brought a lot of the steel guitar and twelve string into there during that time. So there was all it, like the late seventies, early eighties was a very experimental time for rush, mm-hmm. you know, with their, with their fifth, fifth and sixth studio albums, you know, farewell to King and hemispheres. That's that, that was kind of the end of the prog rock era for them. And the transition mm-hmm. into the experimental synth rock, they're like, okay, well we've done this. We've done that. Let's, uh, let's try something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah you know though ah, i love it but there's only so much i can listen mm-hmm. to you know and if i'm going for a good prog rock album i'm trying so, to king Crimson moving forward blah 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 that time machine moving pictures yeah moving mm-hmm. pictures was the oh, breakthrough yeah. album for these guys like dude yeah. it had the fucking dad air drum solo of the fucking world on there. Tom Sawyer, like Red Batcherata, mm-hmm. YYZ, Limelight, like Yeah, just so many good songs on that there. album was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. I think Permanent Waves was my favorite. That was that, to me that was kind of their their breakthrough album. I yeah, mean, yeah. I guess it's subjective. It was right before but, it, so you could tell uh, that they were Yeah, because yeah, you got Spirit of Radio, Free Will. Spirit of Radio, mm-hmm. Free Will, like that to me, like the first two songs in the album, like holy shit, and the first two songs on a Rush album that are under Dude, fucking like, 15 minutes. If you minutes. were to buy that album, not knowing, and then you just throw on in the first song, Spirit of Radio, it'd blow you away. That song is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and that, that Permanent Waves, that, that album was the first one to bring them to mm-hmm. the top five in the U.S., you know, and that's pretty fucking sweet. That was their that was their breakthrough work, you know, and uh, they actually had help writing Tom Sawyer. Max Webster, the uh, lyricist of Pie de Bois, uh, actually helped write that song, offered a good bit of lyrics on that. And uh, Neil Peart <laughs> rewrote it, which Do I thought was that, interesting. 
Do you know that Blender magazine isn't that reputable of a source, but they named him one of the worst lyricists of all time. Yeah, it was weird. Really? I I can't tell you. Why? Let me. I'm gonna look it up real quick. But I read it earlier today. No, Neil Peart. Uh, Getty. Because you know he wrote a lot of their songs. Oh, Neil. So they are. He was like one of the worst lyricists. That's kind of a dickhead. Actually, he was number two on their list of forty worst lyricists in rock. Yeah, yeah, stupid. Who's number one? <laughs> Are you fucking well, kidding yeah, me, though? Like, fucking face. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, if, if you look at like when Blender started and blah blah blah, not to bash them, whatever. But if you look at if you look at stuff like Desert Rose, I mean, come on. I don't really consider take. Blender as one of the uh, <laughs> top info sources. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't move with that either. Also, that's something interesting. I think uh, when you were talking about moving pictures, um, which came out February twelfth, nineteen eighty one, with Anthem Records. God, they were some, they were some record company. Dude, everybody sons wanted of them. Bitches. They, they were cruising, man. They went where the money they went. Were very smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, they, they snuck in a little bit of that prog rock anthem stuff on the side two of that album. The Camera mm-hmm. Eye, an 11 minute song with two parts. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it, Getty. <laughs> I, I know that was him too. I just know it. And he was rolling synthesizers really hard in that album as well. Definitely. They're, they're in the height of that at this point. But. I mean, moving pictures that that bumped him up to a number three slot. Well, they the were about to give up, man. Before moving pictures launched him again, they were just like, uh, I guess this, you know, we're we're gonna make one last album, and if it doesn't, you know, take off, then we just made exactly, something that we yeah. wanted to make. That's what that's what I was saying. That kind of put and, them in the yeah. you know the forefront. Tom Sawyer was a huge hit. Would you say it put them? Would you say it put them in the ah. limelight? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> uh. yeah so i mean it, it worked out well for him moving pictures worked out well for him i think all of their albums were not a complete flop but you know signals grace under pressure uh this is kind of in the experimental years like we talked mm-hmm. about um it, this was this was kind of the uh the back and forth release album tour release album tour release album tour and and this is another interesting point about rush is I have never, you know, cause obviously with this podcast and being music fanatics, you know, we do a lot of research on bands. We do a lot of research on the, the motive of bands, the life of these bands to try to get into the history of these to, you know, these guys and gals to articulate their lives and see where they're coming from. But rush was a very clean very. cut band. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think I know off the top of my head, aside from maybe some classical composers and maybe some jazz musicians, not even that, that were so dedicated to their instrumentals and mastering their craft. I think because they truly enjoyed it. I mean, that's that's who they were. You know, that that's that was their base of their soul. Yeah, they never really got sucked into the media hype. Uh, You never heard any. No 
anything about them really except how good they any were. any trash talk <laughs> about them the only thing was positive no. was like damn all right. yeah you know like yeah like we were talking about offline like when they were on tour with kiss that was one of their breakout tours you know they'd be they had like this woman symposium thing staying in their hotel and there was just chicks in their bathrobes walking <laughs> around the hotel drinking beer and you know, Gene and Paul and them, they're fucking partying with them. And, and Getty and Alex and Neil, they're just in there in the hotel yeah. room being quiet, watching watching TV, <laughs> you know, hanging out. Yeah, That's just crazy to yeah. me. You, like, you don't see that very often. You don't see a band that's completely dedicated to one single solitary thing, except for maybe well, John Paul Jones. Like, maybe you can I think that they were just good good guys, man, because they all had wives yeah, on them. During they were the, super dedicated to not yeah. just their music, yeah. but their personal life. Their, their, their family, yeah, they were private people and then they wanted to keep their private life private. Yeah. Very fucking rare. Completely agree. <laughs> okay, so move. Yeah, Which yeah, I think very rare. You know what I mean? Because how successful they got. Like, I mean, if they, if they would have gotten sucked uh, into yeah. that bullshit, I don't, you know, they might not be where they are. I don't, I don't know if, to me, if it attributes to how successful, quote unquote, in the standard of like billboard charts, to me anyway, you know, this is all subjective, but I think it attributed to how respected exactly. Rush is. No one, no one ever has as a bad whole. word to say about them. Like, it, people respect them as a group, like a lot. <laughs> and oh, yeah. like, Everybody was yeah, so and like, how could you not heard about why haven't they been inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet? What's taking so long? What's going on? Blah blah blah. It took a while, like 2013. Yeah. When, when did they get inducted? I think was finally when they got inducted. Really? It took that long. So they take they they take That's, a long time. Yeah, I I, I don't really want to talk about that. The whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing is a whole nother story, but. <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's all a fucking it's a little that's too all a, a boys monetarily club. political if that's the right way to put it <laughs> oh yeah that... what's what's the benefits of being ruck inducted Not a the fucking thing. Roll Hall of Fame. Just you get your name engraved on some cool glass i guess <laughs> who gives a shit it's because that that recognizes that you as an artist that you know is going to be legendary for years, years, to, you know, eons to come. I think, I think Rush will be pretty legendary for eons. They, to I come mean, they were before they were ever inducted. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've had, uh, we have a few different records that came out, um, you know, in the, in the eighties, we talked about this a little bit of a dark era, but it still kept them moving. Grace under pressure released in 84, you know, power windows in 85, hold your fire, 87 and presto in 89, uh, all great records. And they, Dude, they, God, they were turning so them out, singles. weren't they? Holy turned shit. them out, eh? <laughs> turned them out, eh? And they were on the fucking trailer park boys. Oh, they were, well, well Lifeson was, well, Alex was. Yeah, Alex was. Um, but see, back in uh back in eighty nine when Presto got released, um Alex Alex was significantly more guitar centric yep. than those previous albums. Yeah. I did notice that and uh he was very much more guitar heavy because, you know, gotta remember as we were talking about in the eighties, they were very synth synth heavy. Well they they discussed that. I mean they were pretty much, he was pretty much like, this is it, man. I, I, I 
don't want to hear synths anymore. I want to bring my guitars back. If you don't like it, then we need to talk. And uh, and so pretty much the, you know, what's his nuts was like, yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. Let's just go yeah, ahead and do your, your guitar thing. What uh, that will that was like around yeah. eighty nine ninety. You could tell yeah, yeah, change. Yeah, like, the solos yeah. were getting in there. Like he was killing it. Yeah. Well, I think I think you know the the notoriety of Getty and Neil started kind of overpowering his you know his musical not i wouldn't say his musical ability or musical anything his creativity it started stifling mm. his creativity a little bit you know what i mean because with getty his his overbearing voice you know already is commanding in and of itself you know not to mention he's a great keyboard player and he's a fucking phenomenal bass player and we don't need to talk about neil everybody knows about neil but i think alex started feeling a little bit almost pushed to the wayside yeah Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, I can see. I can see that. Yeah, and so he wanted a little bit more, you know, because like, like we, like you said in the beginning, he's probably one of the most underrated guitar players of all time, and I think Presto really, uh, Presto and Roll the Bones, I think those two albums really brought out his, you know, guitar playing mantras, if you will, you know, his his, his skill prime as a guitar player. Yeah, yeah, his prime because I mean he is. He is a very fantastic guitar player. Um, and so they continued uh, through the 90s with Counterparts in 93 and Test for Echo in 96, uh, both a collaboration album with Peter Collins. Um, after these albums, though, that's kind of it, it's kind of shitty what happened to Neil. Did you guys read what happened to Neil? During yeah, that he time? lost his, uh, yep. his wife and his kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's and part of the uh, documentary that he had. Pretty, yeah, pretty moving stuff, man. Like, was it? Yeah, it's yeah. He just he just got on his uh, motorcycle and just just rode and rode yeah. and rode. And the fact that he videotaped the whole thing was pretty phenomenal. Like, he wanted to document it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they entered a five-year hiatus after this, which is God. I think they fucking deserve yeah. it. Like we talked about, these guys were some record pumping sons of bitches. They didn't take a break for nothing. No, I nope. think like Kill between it. tours, they would maybe take a six months to a year if that was it. If if that. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and while writing music on tour, probably just like three to four months, I would think. <clears throat> yeah. And then uh, Neil ended up remarrying uh, Carrie Nuttall or. Whatever her name is, Newtal. I like to call her Nuts. <laughs> go so back. That, uh, that documentary is called A Work in Progress. A Work in Progress. Hmm. I like it. And he also wrote a book mm-hmm. called Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road. I like that was, too. I might have to read that. Was it about him taking peyote <laughs> out in the desert? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. I was going to say, I really need to read that, but I don't know how to read well, it. That's going to make that really so, awkward. Yeah, the, the work in progress anyway, is kind of dry. Just it's not like super into drumming, but it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's for yeah. the Test for Echo album. And then he like drives around on his motorcycle and talks about shit. But then he kind of like gets into his fundamentals. And if you really pay attention, like he teaches you a lot of his, you know, drumming skills like it's pretty badass but 
kind of boring at sometimes if you're not that into it. So, I mean, I'm into drumming. You might, I'm I mean, into you might like it. Drumming. You might not. So when they finally came back together, that's kind of when he, Neil, got his his idea to have his little uh, drum cage kit. What What do you right? mean when they come back together? Was that it? After After he, you know, after his his motorcycle thing and got, well, they went on. A he got he got remarried, and then he says, "Okay, it's time. You know, we're gonna we're we're gonna do this again, guys. You know, that's when his drum cage." came into play it wasn't not before really that, i mean it? he always had a pretty eclectic set like he but nothing no, to, no, the, no. to the extent like, of that but he i mean he was always like putting bells and like marimbas and w- like weird shit that most people weren't putting into their drum kits at the time and he was mm-hmm. basically like flawlessly putting those into the songs like it was pretty badass like he was one of the you know you know forefront guys on that adding different instruments for like percussive instruments into it anyways Mm -hmm. i think i think him and nick mason nick mason did that a lot he i don't think uh nick was in the same oh please nick Nick mason what did he have he had like a little little uh what are they called no not the gong well yeah he had one of those two probably (laughs) no well i mean he created a little bells no Cowbell? they're like little uh triangle kind of like a triangle <laughs> yeah kind of tambourine no, they're they're like little wind, oh, they're called chimes chimes <laughs> that's right yeah they're called oh they're chimes chimes that's all you have was a little bit of chimes behind them and a gun ah, nick man nick nick had a very eclectic way and, and a very cool way of drumming oh I yeah i agree you know that for anybody to say it's me but but Neil's cage yeah. was ridiculous. Oh yeah, and it kept changing. The motherfucker was an absolute monster. Every tour they went on, bigger and bigger. And I mean, I could, I could go on for days talking about his shit. Like, like, I... <laughs> like that dude, like in his set, would hit a thing, uh, a trigger, and the whole drum cage would spin, and he would turn around and start playing a different side of it. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Tom, hey, yeah. Tommy Lee play upside down. <laughs> Tommy Lee was a fucking shit ass. Tommy Lee can keep beat. He, he had his own thing. I'm not going to knock him because he's, he's a pretty awesome drummer in his own right, but he's not on the same caliber. I don't know, man. I saw. No, no. I saw Motley back, back in like 2014, well, and they were pretty bad. No. no. I, I mean, Nikki even. Nikki says. Really knock bands, but Miley kind of sucks. <laughs> oh, oh, you can absolutely, you, tell- you can absolutely. You can say my, I'm a virgin on here, so oh yeah, fuck Miley Cruz. They suck. <laughs> I I cannot <laughs> yeah. understand. I cannot fathom why they are famous and popular as they are. But it was before my time. It was before my time, so it is what it yeah. is. It was it was 80, 80s rock. I think it was more so lack of. I think it was more so the everybody settled on that. <laughs> Mick Mar Mick Mars yeah. his his guitar tone was like the worst the, the walking the dead. worst guitar garbage, tone ever. Whatever they yeah. did something right. Well, hey. well, hey, what was that sex? Right? Yeah, and that's what it was. They about. were all they. 
exactly they they were appealing to the devil yeah. worshippers and but i mean the, their the, lyrics you know, weren't even like devil worshippers. i don't know man it was, it was... but shout out to devil man it was like everybody bought that album because they Dude, had a freaking pentagram. their lyrics now i mean i compare it to the bullshit hip-hop lyrics now it's just mumble it's whatever yeah yeah i mean i that, that well that's that's <laughs> for a different man. show I, I just, but I agree with you because I'm I'm primarily a blues and classic rock guy with a little bit of punk undertones. But like I I look at bands like that, like Motley Crue, and I'm like, what in the fuck? Like when you compare those bands, like shit, like Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen to me is the worst but, musician but he has that's like ever a fucking following. hit the stage ever. Period. Yep, it's a different. It's a different time though, man. Like, we we won't get it. He sounds like. He sounds like if I went and paid a bum 75 cents to go, we were born to run. That's what he sounds like to me. He sounds like a dirty. But that's why he's popular. Person. His voice is different. It's not like just like Getty Lee. Sometimes I'm, I'm saying Getty Lee. Dude, I love Rush. They're one of me. my most favorite bands. <clears throat> I agree. Sometimes his voice just drives me nuts. There's, there's some songs where I'm like, good mm-hmm. God, dude. <laughs> Yeah, but they, yeah. but like said, one of my favorite bands. So, yeah, it is give or take, I guess. I think it's just like we keep talking about. I think it's that the you know the simple fact that they're masters of their craft. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, where do we leave oh, well, off? Do we you know, off yeah, yeah I think it started getting really progressive in changing their sound to, I guess, match. You know, the times. You, you could really tell like what was going on. Yeah. And they did a good job. That's the yeah. thing. Like people kept following them. Like they didn't lose fans. What was it? Uh, we're gonna move through some years. Blah, 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 blah. Counterparts. Like that's that's when they started rolling into some. Oh yeah, shit. yeah. Like trying to. I mean, it was the early '90s, so they were they were trying new things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I they agree. were getting back to their roots. At that I think point. they're yeah they're tracking. Because they were yeah. wanted that old school sound. Exactly. Right. They they've got their success at this point. By the time Counterparts came out in '93, like they had gotten their success, their commercial success. They had got their following, and their their entire play. Because like we talked about, is they're from Ontario, Canada, and one of the most difficult feats they and, had and was getting into the U.S. Was their fifteenth studio album. That's fucking nuts. <laughs> That's yeah, so a lot of songs, music man. to remember. Fifteenth studio album. And, and like yeah. being a prog band, like they are, you know how hard that would be to remember every note to every song, the length of the songs on each album. I mean, it's just ridiculous how Dude, their memories can, can handle that. Jeez, yeah, insane. Yeah. And all their all their albums were intense, you know. Test for Echoes, like we talked about, even moving into the early two thousands with Vapor Trails and Snakes and Arrows in the mid two thousands. Those they were all great albums. I don't think that I don't think Rush ever yeah, put I mean, out you, a you bad might have album. Not have liked some of the songs that were on there, but they weren't terrible. They weren't bad albums, and I and I think, like I said, by the time the the early two thousands hit, they were they were pushing towards. <laughs> Yeah, an audience. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've already, you know what I mean. Because they're so they're selling out everywhere in the whole world at that point. Yeah, exactly. They don't give a shit. They're mm-hmm. just doing their things. So you know, so we've got uh, snakes and arrows, 
in 07. They're still with Anthem Records. Yeah. That's a pretty good record. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of. That was a pretty good one. Hit their it was fans decent. A weird. People weren't. Well, Vapor Trails did that first. When Vapor Trails came out, people were like, "Okay, you guys are kind of trying, you know, something different." But it wasn't that popular at all. <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, you know, Secret <clears throat> Touch and Earthshine. Those were those were good albums. I mean, those were good uh, songs on the record on Vapor Trails. Well, every. Every album is going to have two or three Very... okay, good, good to good songs, and the rest True. is just filling. I mean, when you're a band of that caliber, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you're trying to think of new shit. It's like we have how many albums did we put out? Ah, oh, this many. Holy shit, we we have nothing left on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Clockwork Angels, that was their last studio album that they put out. Um, that was their nineteenth studio album. Too bad they couldn't have made it to twenty. Yeah. Just a neat yeah, number. That's how Not I am. Here. Yeah, they released, uh, you know, uh, Clockwork Angels, 12 June 2012, still with Anthem Records. Hey, another decent album from Rush. They're not, they're not killing it at this point they because, you know, they've already made mm-hmm. their money. They're just making some jams to keep their, you know, to keep their careers going well, a little bit. Well, kind of occupied. Most the of the time, time uh, you have to have a tour to, to, to have an album to go on tour you know what i'm saying so like if they're gonna go on tour next summer we gotta put right. another album out before for next summer you know so it's, yeah i mean bands nowadays they don't even give a shit anymore like let's go back to molly crew for example that they just go on tour when we feel like going on tour we ain't gonna put no albums out we're just gonna go fucking on tour and collect all the money old school bands like rush they're gonna put time and effort into making the album before they go on tour to give the fans that you know that little extra something you know yeah, and uh, I'd actually like to get my hands their next. The next thing that they they released was the R forty box set in commemoration of their fortieth anniversary in uh, September of two thousand fourteen. I, I don't know. <laughs> Can you find? Yeah, it's, it? on, it's on Apple Music. Oh yeah, is it? <laughs> They're all on Apple Music. <laughs> I gotta I, get I wanna it. Buy the record though. Of course I do. I want to buy. The... <laughs> you have oh, it, yeah. Mike. It's killer. Hmm. Well, after this, they kind of started slowing down much because, you know, the band was actually breaking down. Their health was breaking down at the time. You know, Alex had, you know, pretty bad arthritis and uh, Pert had tendonitis, obviously, exactly. being a fucking banshee on the sticks for 40 something mm-hmm. years. And, and you, you know, know you and so really this, that's kind of when they quit for their professionalism because they didn't really put that out there. They were so like quiet about it. And they, but yeah. they like I mean but they well, really kept their Pert image died, or Pert up died. professionally like no one really knew that they were on a decline like health wise until it was well because yeah, they're, awesome. they're they're private I think I mean the band should be I don't really give a shit yeah yeah like stop About your doing Twitter it, like, feed and your 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 wife posing yeah, nude on be, Instagram be a band. whatever be what you know? everyone wants you to be like I don't give a fuck if you're cooking waffles whatever or you know you're having a <laughs> it's just getting ridiculous waffles. but it was we're talking about waffles <laughs> hey mike i but i, I think it was cool that you know like they kept it quiet for those i uh, was it three and a half years that neil battled with brain cancer like they didn't tell anyone like they told yeah. them 
I'm surprised it like it didn't just didn't get out well, from the nursing staff public, and all that and the hospital stuff. You know, like you know, probably on point with that because you know they they. Yeah, I'll see no, the fuck not out even of you. That. you like say whoever anything. they hired to keep all that quiet was on point, like like on the level yeah. with them, and you yeah. know, like they kept it quiet. Like they didn't want that personal business getting out. And I mean, they kept it quiet for yeah. almost four years, and then he passed away, and no one knew. Like, yeah, it was just. Well, I, I, I also think that by this time, you know, because they pretty much quit, like we talked about. After yeah, the they, they made that set. statement. They, like they pretty much were, were done. We're not quitting. At that point, we're not disbanding, but we're no longer going to be touring. You, you might see some things in, you know, in the future, blah, right. blah, blah. Like they kept it really professional. They did a really good job about it. Right. Mike, why don't, why, why don't you audition for the, for the new part? Shut your face. Rush. That ain't... <laughs> the new drummer, dude. You should, man. Call Getty up. Call you Getty up. This. Yeah. So you should call him. Call him immediately. Like, just as soon as we get off I'm here, the, call I'm Getty work, and tell him. I am the working man. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I'm doing not the connected. best I can. Fit in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that that took me by complete surprise. Dude, you you sent me the message. Uh, like, died, uh, at the as, as into that shit as I am, I didn't even know. Yeah. And then you sent me a text message saying, "Hey, man, he passed away," and I'm like, "What? You're kidding, uh, dude?" Yeah, he was definitely one of the musicians. Like, where were you when Neil Peart died? And I like, you know? I mean, I'm yeah I'm biased because he's one of my favorite people of all time. Like not just my favorite drummer, but he's also you know a cool, great person and a great very person. smart. And like I read a lot of his things that his memoirs and stuff that he's written. But like when that dude, pa- dude, when that guy passed, intensely away, intelligent individual. But like when a, a lot of yeah. other musicians pass away, oh, yeah. I'm like, ah. and I, I, yeah, well. I'm not saying that in a bad term. Like I'm just I don't I, feel I, anything. I'm like you know it sucks. It's a terrible thing. It's a tragedy. But... Well, I mean, like, I I always tell people, man, that there's other than <clears throat> like sexual feeling and fear, music to me is one of the biggest attributors mm. to to emotional, you know, swing that there is out there. And when you connect to a musician on an emotional level. You know, not not like anything to their person, but their music. You're you're attracted to their creativity. You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. just drawn to that person. It'll hit you hard. You know, it, it, even though, like when Chris Cornell died, you know that that hit me really fucking hard, and I was like, holy shit! You know, like when you get emotionally attached to somebody's, you know, somebody's mm-hmm. music. You know, that's that's. A I know when thing. when Joe Exotic passes away, I'm gonna be upset. <laughs> Free Joe Exotic. <laughs> Lock up that bitch, oh. Carol Baskin. <laughs> she fed her husband to the Tigers. <laughs> anyway, I think that's all we got this week on the old uh, the old rush. What a fucking I, episode, uh, man! It feels good, good to be job? back in the studio and, and talk. <laughs> I don't know. We'll let we'll we'll see how many people actually listen <laughs> yeah. to it. Uh, well, we thank you guys for coming out. Sorry, you're all on fucking quarantine. Your dicks look probably look like chewed up pencils by now. Pornhub's maxed out. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go through you our. You can also wash your hands. That's what you can do in your spare time, and uh, <laughs> and wash your fucking hands, and don't spit in each other's mouths. And uh, give us a give us a check out on Facebook. 
obviously rock isn't dead podcast as well as instagram and lastly mr willie whitebread oh, here is building point. guitars so check out whitebread guitars on instagram <laughs> you'll love them you'll love them fully customized you're gonna love them everybody's gonna love them anyway uh we don't know what the topic is gonna be for next week or the following two weeks i yep. want to thank misfit mike martinez not only for being a great person hey, we should do for a, doing all of our we should audio do a drummers editing, uh, thing but for being on the show <laughs> sure i'll just not talk <laughs> but anyway we will see you guys next Boom. week thank you and see stay you